welcome back to the Amplified Word, brought to you by Christ Episcopal Church in Dayton, Ohio. It's a conversation and a deeper look at the lessons for the upcoming Sunday from the Women's Lectionary by Will Gaffney. We invite you to come along as we lift up the women of the Word. Today we're taking a look at the readings for the Feast of the Presentation, which is typically celebrated in the church on February 2nd. The readings come from Leviticus, chapter 12, verse 1 through 8, Psalm 48, verse 1 through 3, and 9 through 14, 1 John 5, 1 through 5, and the Gospel from Luke 2, verse 22 through 38. You might be familiar with this Sunday's feast of the presentation. It is the story of Mary and Joseph bringing Jesus, their young baby, to Jerusalem to be presented um, and a sacrifice offered in the temple. And it's a story in which we hear of two strangers, Simeon and Anna, who each have their own encounter with the Holy Family and share their own personal revelation of encountering the Son of God. Welcome back everyone to the Amplified Word. Pleased to have you back with us again today. I'm Peter Holmeyer, the rector here at Christ Episcopal Church. And I'm Mary Jane Plody, the program's assistant. We're glad you're with us. Great. Mary Jane, I think that one of the things I think about about this text right away, and I hope we can talk a little bit about maybe the gospel and the text that feeds it the most, the first reading, the one that's from Leviticus, is just the mental image it creates at the presentation event at the temple. Yes. What do you sort of picture is happening that day um, when the Holy Family arrives there at the temple in Jerusalem? I think I imagine pure chaos. Just tons of people. We know that the temple wasn't wasn't like our, you know, modern or contemporary church, you know, quiet all the time, except on Sunday morning when it's still not quite loud. Um, but this is a market. There's, you know, sacrifices happening constantly. People are coming that are making their own offering. People are coming for the changing of money. And it's just the center of culture, the center of the, the religious life, the center of some of the political life of, of Jerusalem at the time. And so it's just a lot. And here come these like poor young newlyweds and their 33 and 8 day old baby <laughs> like into this mess right and they're not from the city i just imagine walking into times square sure the first time and you're yeah i love that as you're like, way of thinking about you're it you're from small town ohio maybe right. and you walk into times square and it's 6 p.m. on a friday night everyone's going to see the shows the lights are bright and blinding there's all yeah. these people trying to take pictures with you right for... the singing naked text yeah right like there. all I mean, that random stuff in. that it's just yeah. like 
all I wanted to do was get a slice of pizza, where do I go? Yeah. You know, and just the overwhelm. Yeah, there's a, I mean, there's all these different things. People are using it as a marketplace. People are using it as a meeting place. Um, the temple, of course, had multiple sort of inner sanctums, and the outside ones were used by everyone, and they'd sort of set up for the day. And then as you move in, and you also start to have, it's consistent, constant sacrifices. People are here. Right. They've got a whole series of things they're coming, they're making. There's only the one temple. So unlike in our culture where we're used to, you know, there's a church on every street corner, for these kinds of events, there's really only one place you can go. So everybody's gathered there. Um, and it is very chaotic, in, I think, in there. It's, it's people moving every which way. I think it might make it easier to understand how these two characters that are in here... Um, Simeon and Anna might sort of sneak up on them because there's so much going right. on. Yeah, it's not like they were chasing after them. They're just out of the blue. You end up with this stranger yeah. who's like, ah, oh, yes, I know who you are. And that's a little more off-putting, I think, if right. you're Mary or Joseph and you aren't from the big city, you're not from Jerusalem, and these people have found you, and they seem to know something about who you are, and most importantly, about who Jesus is. Right. That's crazy to imagine. I, but it's not as crazy in the chaos, right? I, I'm not sure that in the text, I always imagine in the text, it doesn't say whether Simeon asked to take the baby from the parents. I think he just grabs it. And I kind of get the impression that this baby just gets snatched right out of their hands. Right. Like, he's pretty excited, you know, and he just right. sort of comes up to... So that's adding to this really unusual surprise element of this. But I also wonder if, you know, there's something about how we treat folks depending on how much money they have. As to what would even be considered normal or normative. Yep. You know, maybe someone, if you're, if you're really not rich, and they're not rich, they're poor. Uh, the Leviticus text makes clear that what you're supposed to do when you come to the temple is you're supposed to sacrifice a young lamb. And then only at the very end of the text does it offer this sort of alternative option for the real destitute, which is two turtle doves. Right. And that's what they're... Which is what we're going to see. That's what, yeah. that's what they're offering. Yep. They're not offering anything else. You know, that we make different sorts... I also just think about, when I read the text, different um, sorts of expectations on those who ha go without. We don't see them as having the same kinds of rights. I mean, would anybody snatch up the son of the high priest without asking No. Them? Yeah, no. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there is like a... You see the stratifica stratification, right, of this so clearly. Like, oh, you're just some lowly people coming into the temple. I have to grab this. I have to grab this baby. I know this baby. This is a, this is amazing. And you won't mind. <laughs> no one's going to care. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah, like, yeah. How? Okay. It's hard for us to imagine. But, yeah, no. I definitely think he just grabbed the baby. I'm pretty sure that they <laughs> teach parents not to let others do this at this right. point anymore. Right. <laughs> no, you can't take my child. <laughs> That's called kidnapping. Yeah. So there's definitely so many layers of what they're doing, why they're doing it. And, and we really get an insight into who Mary and Joseph are. 
because of what we know is required from Leviticus. Yeah. So we know now how poor they are. We know how devout they are. Right. And how faithful they are, that they're willing to do this. They make this journey. They commit themselves and their child in this way. Um, And so if you understand what's happening in Leviticus, the story in Luke is just all the more shocking almost because this is this is not the high priest this is a nobody right they're very much you know we don't have a lot about the early life of Jesus well at least that survived in the canonical right text. yeah in the there, canon in the canon yes. there's really not very much about Jesus until all of the gospels for sure are kicked off and really running at high speed by the time we get to the baptism of our Lord. Right, yeah. But uh, but before that, the stories are really sort of um, hit and miss. But one of the things they make really clear, the other one that comes to mind immediately, of course, is when Jesus is teaching in the temple at the age of 12. Mm-hmm. The multiple examples, his family lives multiple days of walking away. They're certainly... All the texts are really clear. They're Galilean family, and they're of no particular means. And that, but that they make the expected regular trips to Jerusalem. They are a devout family, um, and yet I wonder how Jesus was raised. How that impacts how he speaks about God. I mean, it becomes really, starts to become something that I think we can see even before Jesus speaks in cases like this. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. There's an access to Jesus that you get because he is born so poor. Right. That everyone has access to him. Simeon can grab him from his mother. Right. Um... Everyone in his community feels like, oh, no, we know him. Surely that can't be Mary's son. Like, right. wait, I know Mary, you know. And, and so there's this access that is opened for us mm-hmm. 2,000 years later to know Jesus and to feel connected with him in a very literal way because he has been poor. He has struggled with his faith in the sense of, I know who I am, and yet this is the world I have to live in, and they don't always line up. There's a lot that we get, I think, in in Jesus being poor that opens him up to more and more people. Right. Yeah, and one of the things, of course, that Gaffney's doing regularly, and we see in the text is um, expanding our use of language for the name of God. Right, yes. And I think that... I, an easier imagination for me with Jesus's understanding of God from this kind of a perspective that looks bottom up, even in Jesus's own life. Mm-hmm. Um, it and then and I, you know, you can even see this in some ways. Again, what gets preserved in the text is some fairly traditional patriarchal language when Jesus talks to God of say Father, for right. example. However. Another thing that happens that's fascinating in the text is the Jesus' naming of Jesus' self, which I think is a really interesting example of the kind of thing we're talking about. This term, son of man, is very enigmatic when you start to get into it. It doesn't show up anywhere else in the text. Nope. It doesn't have really any roots in the Old Testament. 
when you start to read around the other literature of the time, it doesn't really show up in that terms in any way. Right. And it's it's notable that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about Emmanuel, God among us, but this isn't a name Jesus uses for Jesus' self. Jesus uses a name, and again, man is problematic in and of itself and in its own ways, but meaning like everybody else. Son of people. Yeah. Son of humans. Example Son of, of right. the people walking around right. on the street right. that you see every day. Yeah. 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 Right. It is so interesting that he always refers to himself as the son of man, even when his followers will address him as the son of God or the Messiah. He turns it and he, he really is flipping on its head what we believe about God, what we believe about the kingdom of God. Um, I mean, we're going to get that later on in his ministry lifting up the lowly and bringing down the the regimes that oppress um, in a literal way and also in a spiritual way. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and I think this is some of the, the foundational work of what womanist, womanism is trying to do, which is trying to help us. We talk about the divine found in everything and in particularly the things that don't have the capacity or haven't been given the space to speak for themselves, mm -hmm. uh, to, to have agency, right? Yep. But maybe we're still so enculturated to be listening to teachers, politicians, leaders, entrepreneurs, people at whatever the top is, that to really imagine and use and speak into and live into a God who's found even in those whose voices we've never heard, is it's good to see, it's good for me to be reminded that those are Jesus's people. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. The grass, the grassroot kind of movement of, mm -hmm. of who Jesus was born to be. Right. And born among. Yeah. Okay, so we've got to get into Leviticus because there's so much to just absolutely digest here. Of Let's talk about burden a little bit. Okay. Uh, because I'm struck by this womanist connection here, this womanist theme of who has to bear the most burden mm. in our world, in our systems, in our religion, right. in our practices, in our households. And the woman carries this child, which I've never carried a child, but, you know, it sounds like a pretty big burden, um, growing a human from scratch, and then gives birth, which, again, sounds like a pretty big burden. And then, in addition to caring for this child feeding it of herself, she also has the burden of being purified and isolated mm. mm -hmm. right after giving birth. Right, right. And that's what the text talks about. Right, yes. And the text is talking about that there's a sort of seven days 
of taboo, uh, which is similar to any time. So this all seems to relate to bodily discharge, right? Yes. At least yeah. that's one of the major taboo areas. Yes. Um, culturally and, you know, physiologically, well, women do that every month, right? right. You know? Right. Um, and, and they compare it to your menstruation, right? right? So you'll have these seven days just like with your menstruation, which is seven days every 28 days, right? right. So... There's this taboo connected to it, mm-hmm. and it does have to do with discharge and blood and a lot of stigma, a lot of misunderstanding, I think, too, of what yeah. that is. And um, But not all of that is gone, Some of, still. There's certainly, a, I mean, I think it's worth remembering the obvious, which is there's an understanding that's baked right in culturally here that we carry around too. You certainly can see it in what's happening with trans communities right mm-hmm. now. That um, somehow things that come out of your body that somehow make you l- are something to have shame over. Yes. Um, and that somehow that represents something that is outside of God's sort of working in the world. It's a breaking of a perfect cycle. Um, but how is that even possible? I mean, when you really think about it, right, right. there's some practical reasons for this. Certainly, after you give birth to a baby, you probably ought to have at least a month where you aren't asked to do all your regular jobs while you recover a little bit. Right, but more from a place of recovery and rest and healing right. rather than from a place of purifying and right. um, the sense that you're somehow unclean or unworthy right. of being around others. Well, you have to go make a sacrifice for the atonement for your sin yes. of having How had this, dare you have, have this, had this right, happen. Natural, physical process. And a good thing, right? I mean... Bearing children all through the Old right. Testament right. is kind of a mark of a woman's value. Yes. Abraham and Sarah. Right. You know, I mean, all of Jacob's family is tied up in this idea of having children, having sons especially. And so this was a good thing, but yet after you've had this child, and it's an even better thing if it's a male, you're somehow no longer worthy to participate in life. Yeah, it's really... To the it, fullest, I guess, yeah. Not surprisingly, I when I read this, I've re, I'm reminded, and we all do this, and it's always easier to point it out in somebody else's culture how this happens than in my own, but that there's really uh, two conflicting messages that are coming out here right. at the same time and that are both really central and I think can lead to some real dis-ease, right? You know, mm-hmm. in the real fundamental sense of that being two separate words um, that we have an, an unease with what the space that leaves us in. So on the one hand, you know, the bearing of life, the continuing of the life cycle is profound profoundly divinely inspired and grace-filled right and in mm-hmm. many 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 ways particularly in the old text is foundational to how you're supposed to identify yourselves so that's problematic in its own way but that that's all very positive 
And then there's the second piece of it, which is the actual mechanics of what happens are something which are to be hidden, something that includes shame, mm -hmm. something that's to not be named. It's taboo. It's taboo. And that's literally everything from, you know, language around the uncovering of the feet. I mean, from the sexual acts right. themselves. Yes, yeah. All the way through, again, it's not couched in the positivist language of helping a mother be best prepared to care for her children by having this time where they're separated, but rather because there's something intrinsically dangerous or wrong or unhealthy or mm -hmm. something we're supposed to have some kind of shame around with yeah. these events. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of shame wrapped up in it. And it strikes me as disconcerting that yeah. this is what's expected of a young mother, you know, a, a, who, especially if we were going to put ourselves in the framework of Mary is poor, does have to work, does have to help around the house um, and contribute in that way, but also might be feeling already so much of the isolation and fear and anxiety and sadness and um, all of the emotions that we now in our modern times understand to be tied to the postpartum um, experience of so many. And then to then be pulled away from that, you know, and, and hidden away. And then to have to make a journey after all of that to Jerusalem. It just... The burden seems so high, and it's easy for me to say because I live in this time and this culture where I'm not ever expected to do that. Um, and I'm sure they do it with joy, and I'm sure they do it with thanksgiving and praise of God. But it seems like a lot to ask. Yes, I, I would agree. And I would, I would agree that I think most of it is sort of what was their awareness of what the actual sacrifice of this was? Is it so normalized, you right. know, culturally, um, that, you know, you, you don't think about anything else because that's what the options are. And it's so it's just what you do. One of the things I appreciate about the Gaffney texts and this year are a chance to go into a space where we can have a little more um, resistance or at least stronger dialogue around recognizing what's really being asked of folks in these spaces and who's being allowed to speak because certainly God is present to all of them so where whose voices are still being muted here right who do we need to amplify the word of yes. Certainly to come back around to the gospel passage, one of the things that's so surprising is the prophet that's mentioned in here is a woman. Right. So she's certainly not allowed in the Holy of Holies. She's certainly not allowed in some of the more inner um, workings of the temple. And yet this prophet 
never leaves. She's praying day and night. And she comes to know God. She comes to know who Jesus is. And in a moment, that that's it. Like, she just knows. Her whole life has been fulfilled. It's wild <laughs> when it, you think about it. Like, both of the strangers that we encounter in, in Luke are in this story is just really interesting who we are being connected to, right? Who this text has pieced together. Mm -hmm. They're lowly, they are old, they're outsiders, but they're faithful. Right. They are devout. They are unceasing right. in, in their faith. And they have their own ways to pray. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's one of the things I need to still keep reminding myself. I mean, they have their own voices. Mm -hmm. And their voices are not the same voices as what... A, I'm, you know, they almost certainly spoke to a priest that day. How much do we of that was worth recording in this right. text? Right. None of it. No, we didn't get... Whatever the the priest who offered the sacrifice, we no. don't get anything from that. We don't, we get, don't get the sacrifice no, at we all. Don't. Exactly. We know that they went and they took their little right. doves and that's their sacrifice. But the people that we hear about are not those people. Yeah, They exactly. exist outside of it. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's, it's so cool. <laughs> It is good, and it's good to be reminded. I, You know, what I appreciate about coming back to this text and spending this time with you today is that it is yet another reminder, which it's always so good to have. We know Jesus now in this age through the institutions of the church, and mm -hmm. what's maybe incredible, and maybe always has been incredible, and maybe this is also part of what Gaffney's trying to do for us, is that somehow still in the text, in something that's really needed to sort of serve an institutional master for almost 2,000 years now, is that there's still the voices, there were institutional masters who needed, who expected their voices to be heard in the time of Jesus as well. But what the text keeps trying to remind us of are the other voices. Yeah. So until next week, when we'll talk more about some of those other voices, it's good to be with you. Thank you for this conversation today, Mary Jane. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Amplified Word. To learn more about the Women's Lectionary by Will Gaffney and our year-long formation programs, Women of the Word, we invite you to visit our parish website, DaytonChristEpiscopal.com.